So this is our um, third class together um, around the essential elements of formless practice. And if I could just briefly um, summarize where we are in this three-legged stool. We talked uh, last week about <coughs> the view that um, we hold or we need to hold in order to make the uh, practice our living reality, our life, so that we can actually see it rather than try to get back to it. I think the tendency early on is to think very uh, separately about uh, our life, our work life, our family life, and our spiritual life. They seem to be compartmentalized as if we go from one form of our life into another form as we involve, uh, with involve ourselves with different practices. So the time we spend in meditation is our spiritual time. The time we spend at work or with our family, we may interpret in a different way. And what that leads to is a feeling that um, life isn't very continuous in what it can offer. So the view that we approach our spiritual practice with, our, our lives with, has to be uniform across whatever it is that we involve ourselves in if we are to make our whole lives a spiritual practice. And uh, just personally, I had a very difficult time doing that uh, within the Christian tradition, not because there was anything wrong with Christianity, but because of the way it was taught to me. And it was um, the way I interpreted it being taught to me, I should put it that way, was that, uh, you know, that you come to church every Sunday and I was an acolyte. And I did all the, I was involved with a lot of the youth activities in, in a church. Um, but then to have fun, I had to get away from that. It was kind of tortuous, torturous, really, to be a part of the church at that age, growing up. And I always, always I didn't feel that there was much depth in the delivery of the message. So I uh, really felt I, um, at one, at some point, as I got into my 20s, um, that I needed something that uh, really addressed my life in a very different way and it led into Eastern traditions and into meditation. But even when I was in meditation, it felt very discontinuous in the way I would meditate. The hour I would spend sitting felt very much a, a sense of peace and quiet and calmness. And then when I'd get up, I'd lose that very quickly. And, uh, uh, and so then I kept sitting and I sat more and more and more and more. And when I was still, when I was sitting, I was in it. And when I wasn't sitting, I wasn't in it. And for years, I uh, fought against being in it and not being in it because part of my mind would pull me away and didn't want to sit all the time. And then part, another part of me wanted to return to that sense of well-being that I felt when I was meditating. And slowly over time, uh, what I began to realize was that there was a view or an understanding 
that I had to take from one into the other if, the, if it was all to make sense to me. And that view, that understanding is very much the sense of what life is about. Whether it's about uh, the accumulation and acquisition of things or whether it's about our involvement in life, our relationship with life, our being in life itself. <clears throat> and I think that there can be some long-term effect of meditation on that view, but it takes a long time to do that unless we actually begin to bring that view up as an effort, as a will, to start looking at things. Oh, I, I don't need to involve myself in this anymore like this. I don't have to get entangled in this anymore. That's not what life is about. So we, one of the ways to get into the seat, onto our spiritual seat, is to look at life from that view of process rather than product and to reassert it. But how do we do that, see? That's just a view. How do you reassert a view? How do you bring something into your perception that isn't there when you look out? Well, it's because we've only talked about one leg of the stool, that it's not a complete teaching yet. So today we're going to talk about the second leg. The second leg of that stool is how or what we can access as an attitude which reinstates the view of process rather than product. Does that make sense to you? How, how can we, um, I'm caught in a predicament. You know, my boss is yelling at me. I'm nervous and tired and I'm just about ready to react and tell him to. But something stops me and I reassert a certain attitude. I bring into that relationship a certain attitude which all of a sudden through that attitude, the whole view changes. So it's through the assertion or the effort to use this particular uh, expression of life in an ongoing and participatory way that one view changes into the other. The view of product changes into the view of process. I mean, when we sit in meditation, as we're just sitting there, uh, if you did it for any length of time, probably an hour or 45 minutes isn't enough, but you begin to feel the foreground and the background shift. What was the foreground, which is your thoughts and all the worries that you have, and oh, I forgot, I left the tea kettle on and all of that, and why did he say that to me, and, and I've got to get home, see my son, and all that sort of content. Uh, as we just sit, we don't do anything. As we just sit, it becomes the background noise to a sense of space and sense of quietness. And then it's just thinking. We just, we see the content move from a content product to a process of just mind involvement, where there's just emotions, thinking, feeling, sensations, sounds, and in a stream of consciousness. So the background, the foreground shift like that. Then we come back out of meditation and we're back with the noise again. We've lost the spaciousness. So the question 
that these talks are supposed to address is how to keep the foreground the foreground and allow the background to be there. Participating in it when we have to and when we need to, uh, but not let it define uh, our relationship to the world. I see what you, I mean, we just can't expect after all the hours we've spent building a particular view of the world to have it just shatter and all of a sudden we're looking at everything as a process, as a being, I'm in love and everything is wonderful. It just doesn't work that way. No matter, uh, no matter what, it's, 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 there's too much conditioning for us to see things in one particular way, one particular style. There needs to be some way to convert those two views, one from the other. So that we have this particular attitude, which I will talk about in a minute. <laughs> we have this particular attitude, and it's not an, a pious attitude. It's not piety. It's not like, okay, now I have to be spiritual. I mean, that would be just, that, all that would do is just translate us into a different person, different product. It wouldn't really connect us with the process. Are people following this? This is very abstract. But I can't talk, how can you talk about a view in an abstract way? I mean, I'm doing the best I can, so bear with, bear with me. Try to, try to bring it down to your experience, though. It, I don't want it to be just conceptual. <clears throat> so, I, I mean, I can't, you know, all of a sudden, get my mala beads and start going, uh, you know, may all beans be happy, may all beans be happy, or own money, pidmi. That works for a while, but it's, it's something, that if, something that I just can't carry with me in, in a business meeting. I need something else. I need something that's much more natural, much more a part of the process of life, much more accessible than all of the different forms that we, I can't carry my zafu into a board meeting. See, so I don't, want to, I don't want any part of piety. That's not part of what I want to do. I want something that's here, around, right now, available to us all, immediately. And then, in that instant, the secular and the spiritual change focus. Background, foreground. This attitude will allow me to move across perspectives and across behaviors, translating everything into the spiritual. Everything. So it has to be something that's understandable to both views. Because I'm not always going to be in the spiritual view. Sometimes I'm going to be in the very secular product view. So without imposing something on either view, I need something that fits into, translates into both parts of myself. So what is that attitude? Well, we went over it briefly when we talked about it the first week. And that is the attitude of learning. The attitude of learning. You see, I mean, that's not threatening to anyone. If somebody says, what's your spiritual practice? And you said learning, would that freak a Christian out? I don't think so. Jewish, Hindu, everyone can understand that. Everyone puts that into their own frame of reference into what they do. And it can be carried into all situations. Interesting, uh, when I was in Central Texas, 
uh, starting up a hospice there. I um, did I get tell about this last week? No. Yes, I. Joy, she knows because she lives with me. <laughs> but it, it was. Uh, <laughs> um, I was um, at a board meeting. You sure I didn't tell about this? Okay. I was at a. So, I was at a board, well, I'll just tell it again. <laughs> you have to live through it. I was at a board meeting and, uh, you know, the, you know, I was trying to communicate with people about what the practice was and I had tried uh, several different ways to do it. Didn't want anybody to know that I had been a Buddhist monk or nobody would have even approached uh, or allowed me to stay in that area. Um, <laughs> But so I, I said, okay, what can I do to bring people together around the real spirit of hospice care? Spirit of hospice care is really a spiritual focus. It's a spiritual value. So how do you do that? So you start talking about death, which is a very, well, it's not a safe subject, but it's at least every, one that everybody can agree to. So you start talking about, you say, do you, and, you, and you bring it and you phrase it in a way that allows people to learn about death and their reactions to death. And you see, so you bring learning into it and everybody's safe. Everybody sits around this board meeting. People that wouldn't even talk about Buddhism are sharing some of the insights of Dharma, of life, in a way that they never could because learning is safe. Learning is acceptable to everyone. And so that's, that's what we have to do. And it's not just to be safe that we're taking about, but learning is a practical thing. Everybody knows what it means to learn. I mean, it's not a foreign, if you come, if you come this, through life this far, you, you have some sense of what learning is. Now, it's, it's, it can be a product, right? Or it can be a process. How can it be a product? Well, I'm looking out. Yeah, you know, go to University of Washington or something. Everybody there, not everybody, that's not fair. Many of the teachers there uh, use their learning for knowledge. They've gotten their master's, PhD, and, and their professors. And it's because of what they know. So their knowledge is a product. It's something that they use, storehouse, and use in effective to communicate and teach. Well, that's how learning can be used from the old view. Most of us put ourselves through school or through education from that view. But learning can also be a process where I'm not just trying to state claim on what I know. It's an ongoing participatory interaction with life always available. I mean, everybody knows what they're about. How do you know that? Except that you've made contact and learned about yourself in and out of different situations. Hopefully a person who is aware has an ongoing respect for that kind of learning to take place, to make an impact, to be able to see where we're holding back, where we're, where we're aversive, where we're attached, where we're holding on. And that's really all we're saying here. 
And the tendency is to keep bringing that learning forward into a product and making something out of it, becoming a Dharma teacher. And so it's, it feels in some ways very frustrating to go through a number of years of Dharma practice and really don't feel like you've, uh, you have much that you can put into your wallet. I mean, it doesn't translate down in terms of uh, academia in the same way. <clears throat> so learning, well, let me just, we just need to speak a little bit about learning tonight if we could. See, um, now when you're learning, when you're interested in something, when you're learning about something, you're aware, automatically you're aware. It's awareness, the mindfulness is present when you're learning. You're listening, you're looking, you're attentive, and it's making an impact on you. The relationship is there, you're involved in it. In that involvement, there is learning. There's also mindfulness, there's also attention. And so the whole practice is available in that, when that attitude is there. And so all we have to do when we are in the middle of a situation that seems difficult for us, say our boss is yelling at us or our wife is or our children are fussing or something, is to go from a sense of that being, uh, that being an oppressive situation to thinking, how can I use this situation for my growth? If we just make that flip, make that switch in ourselves, so that we begin to translate the situations at hand, or whatever I'm going through in relationship to those situations, not as a burden or as a problem, but rather as a, an avenue, as a tendency where I can say, well, how, how can I make this work for me? How can I understand what's occurring here? How can I understand, how can I look at this in a way that helps me grow and understand what my life is about? Of course, the question is, will, are we willing to do that? And um, some of us are, and some of us aren't. Uh, if I could tell you a hospice story of a man, very um, successful banker, uh, who spent his life uh, very much in the view of accumulation and had amassed a great deal of uh, wealth and influence in the community. He was well-known, well-liked, um, had all the advantages of affluence. Uh, but uh, as he began to die in his last weeks of life, he really began to see that all of those things were not going to uh, move into his death, uh, allow an easier death essentially. And so he became very um, uh, controlling in the last weeks as he tried to build his death or approach his death in the same way that uh, he had with his life, like he was watching the stock market of his death, trying to build all the different pieces and hold them in, in place so that he could reap the advantages. Them. He had the right people come around. He had the, his priest come 
frequently, twice a day or whatever it was. And, you know, he just tried to set the whole thing up. He tried to stage it. And then um, as he got even closer to death with a, within a few days, um, he just told everybody to leave the room that he didn't want any part of it anymore. And the only person he wanted to speak with at that time was the hospice nurse. And he just fell from that view of trying to build everything into his perfect death as he had with his life. It just imploded on him. And he just came out of that situation with a, uh, an enormous appreciation for uh, the relationships and for the love that he had uh, accessed, the love that he always had accessed with his family. And his family is what became important. And he, uh, his wife of 40, 50 years, I can't remember how many, uh, he kept calling her over and telling her how much he appreciated her. And she said, well, you haven't told me that in 50 years of marriage. He says, I know, but I haven't been dying in 50 years of marriage. <laughs> and so the relationship became important, you see. The tenderness, what he had the, from the quantity that he was building up, all of a sudden that was no longer useful to him. And all of a sudden the quality of his life became rich. And it seems as if we have to somehow burn ourselves out, somehow try to maintain the methods that have worked for us, try to substantiate them in our, into our life, try to make them work for us, try to squeeze out the, the juice from all of that product before we're willing to participate in life in a different way. So it's not that we want to force ourselves from one view to another, from one understanding to another. But you see, the beauty of learning is that it gently evolves one view into the other. If we are willing to participate and to look and to learn about the limitations of the way we hold the world now, that learning, because it comes from the process of life, starts eroding that view, changing it, molding that view, into something else, into some other way of looking. It becomes like you, you have a, um, a foggy window and you just make a little hole in it. There's still an immense amount of fog, but you can see light through that hole. Well, that's the learning. And the learning itself is like having that hole just get bigger and bigger so that it eventually covers the whole window. It becomes the way that we view the world through and accessing learning in an ongoing way. And then there's no difference between your life in the meditation hall and your life in the working office. Those two come completely together. There's nothing um, spiritual about anything. Or there's nothing, another way to say, there's nothing secular about everything. Everything has the same meaning and purpose. It all has its resonates with our own growth through our willingness to access our learning. In that sameness, that sameness isn't um, isn't just um, the continuation of the same. It's really um, it's not just ordinariness. It's extraordinariness. Everything becomes extraordinary. 
from that view. But we have to be willing to participate in it. And we have to be perhaps most frightenedly, most, where there's most fear, is that we have to be willing to change. Because when we are learning, learning is change. If I am seeing and allowing whatever it is to really show me its message, then I'm not screening that message. I'm not saying, well, maybe I'll do it, or maybe I won't, or maybe I should. That's, that's, not, that's the old way we learn. That's deliberation. Well, let me hear, and then I'll decide whether I want to change or not, and I'll think about it, and then I'll go out and do it. No. When we're learning, there's no screen. There's no, we're not protecting ourselves from what we see. It's just what we see communicating to our heart straightforward. There's no judgment. There's no aversion. There's no attraction. We're just seeing. In that just seeing, we are changing according to what is seen. So learning doesn't imply change, it is change. It's immediate and feeling the immediate impact of life itself. Learning is change. I think that's an important to understand, and I think that's why we keep bailing out of learning. We keep bailing out from that attitude. Because we're willing to change a little, but how much? You know, God. When we really don't know, when we, when we begin to change, we don't know what we're going to be changing into. And that's scary. We have no firm footing. We have no direction in terms of an assurance or a guarantee that this is what I'll become after all this learning. And what we try to do is we try to plot our course, our spiritual course. I say, well, I'll do a week-long meditation retreat, and that'll increase my samadhi. Now, I'll take my samadhi. I can play better golf with my samadhi. <laughs> I'll be able to have better relationships because I can listen a little better. So that's what I'll do with that, you see. Then I'll do another week-long. So we've plotted out. I'll do some yoga, and that'll straight, now make my body a little more flexible. And I'll do some meditation and sharpen my mind. Now I've got to open my heart, so I'll do a lot of metta. I'll go do a week-long metta retreat. And we have the whole thing plotted out according to some kind of map that we're on. Well, what about just our ability to listen and to open to things, to be available? be able to change. For some reason, we just, we, we believe so strongly in opinions. We believe so strongly in our judgment. And we hold in very high esteem people who hold a lot of opinions. And we think that people who don't have some sense of naiveness about them or simple-mindedness. So learning is change. 
Learning is the willingness to participate in life open-ended, without reservation, without holding back, just listening, just learning. And if we decide we're not going to do that, then we know we're doing that as well. You see, there's no shutting it off. It's not a valve that you say, enough hot water. Whatever we're doing, if we know that we're doing that, that's a continuation of learning. Even if you say, I'm finished with this, I don't want to learn anymore, you know you're not. And therefore, the process continues all the time. It never allows us to arrest because we always understand what we're doing in and out of the flow of what we involve ourselves in. So we never stop. Now doesn't that somehow make sense in terms of our spiritual lives? We never stop the process of learning. But what does stop is the movement towards identifying with anything in particular about what we learn. We don't lay claim. We don't cash in our chips and say, now I am this for my learning. I've been here, and now I'm here, and this is the way I am now. We don't identify with, our, with what we have learned or how we have learned. We just keep right on. It's like when you sit, sitting down and you have a pain in the knee. And you go, oh, I have a pain. You, you make contact, you're aware of that pain in the knee. And then you're aware of the aversion that you have to that pain in the knee. And you see that. You're learning about that. You're learning about the pain and then you're learning about the aversion of the pain. And then you say, oh, I don't want this pain. And then you're learning about how the I comes in. Where was that I when there was just pain? Where was that I when there was fear? The I came in as a concept about the relationship between the fear and the pain. I don't want this pain. I don't like it. I want out of this thing. And we begin to learn to see how it is that we keep bringing our sense of self into the relationship when there isn't a sense of self inherent at all in life. We keep reinserting it fictitiously, conceptually, into the process, into the flow. And as soon as I say, I don't like this, I'm no longer moving in that flow. I've solidified out, and I'm, a, I'm an entity and solid, and I'm up against life, holding it at bay. And so what we learn, because learning itself is a flow, is a movement, is a process, is that as long as we can stay within that process, then we are in the whole continuum of spiritual development. We're in the whole, we're enmeshed in it, we're right in it. And as soon as we bail out and make a statement as opposed to what I'm about in, term, in terms of my pain or my relationship or whatever, then I've taken myself out of that flow. I'm standing on the bank looking at the river instead of in the river itself.
everyone has the same potential to learn, but not the same readiness to learn. How satisfied and engaged and preoccupied we are in our reality determines how willing we are, willing we are to learn at any given moment of time. So it's interesting, I, I, I don't know if any of you know someone who is learning English as a second language. And if you meet them uh, while, when they've just come here to this country, there's a very strong and need to, uh, in many cases, to learn English. And they're really, this learning curve is very steep. They're trying to learn every word and you can see their engagement and interest. <clears throat> then, if you come back after 10 or 15 years, they've been in this country, some will have a very thick accent and will have learned, you know, enough to get by and they'll no longer be engaged in that learning process in the same way. Others will be fluent in English, almost without any accent whatsoever, and you get the sense that they never bailed out of their learning at all. They always continue to learn more and more about their English. At what point do they or do we decide that we've learned sufficient amount and we don't really have to put forth the effort anymore? We know enough English, or we know enough about ourselves, or we know enough about whatever work we do. We don't really need to engage it in the same way. We don't need to show the same interest, to follow the same passion that we used to. Well, learning is taking that language to the most subtle degree possible, following it as far as it can possibly be followed, and never giving up that sense that there's more that that language can teach us. You can see how rigid we are in terms of that if you look at science. Science is very interesting because it's supposed to be open to what's new, but so often, like I was at uh, uh, University of North Carolina as an undergraduate, and uh, down the road was Duke, just about 10 miles. <clears throat> and uh, we, at that time, uh, I think Duke still, it had a very strong uh, extrasensory perception laboratory where they were studying ESP. And we invited, the one in North Carolina invited uh, Duke over to some of the people from that department uh, just to talk about their work in, uh, in different uh, thing like hyper or autokinesis or moving objects and that sort of thing. Uh, in the reception, I was a social scientist, I was in the psychology department, and the reception that those people got, I mean, they, they drew, had all their graph, all their science was very much intact. They were showing how uh, they had, you know, done different experiments with lots of different people and that uh, that they were significant uh, results uh, at some percentage level that was scientifically appropriate and how they had conducted these experiments and everything. It was very good science. And, but the results were wrong because it sh showed and proved that ESP extrasensory perception was a fact. And because our department 
had learned that or allowed that to be part of their science, our scientific conditioning, we made it hell for that poor professor who came over to speak to us about that. Criticizing him and I mean, how open, you know, how open are we to new, you see, we, we're willing to change as long as the way we're changing is in somehow within the same view that we hold. But you throw in something like extrasensory perception or like Einstein's theory of relativity when the, there's no way to bring that into that view. So your view has to be altered so radically that it destroys our picture of things. And not very many of us are willing to do that. That's the kind of learning that self-understanding brings. It shatters your understanding of who you are. It destroys your stake, the stake that you have in being who you are. That's what, that's the message. The message is the message of ESP, the message of relativity, the message of a completely shattered perspective of a whole different way of looking. Now, how many of us are willing to do that? We want just a little bit. We want to know whether we're nice or not nice. <laughs> we want to know, are we too assertive, not assertive enough, too aggressive? What about our hostility? We'll ask for feedback so that we get information that fits within our uh, our established perspective. It's okay. Don't go this. Don't go over this. You got to stay within these borders. But that's not learning. Doesn't take us within these borders. It keeps shattering our borders. It keeps taking us outside. It shows us a whole different reality. And my question is: Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go there? Are we willing to travel that road? Or do we just want to be nice people? So the question is, how much do we really want to know? And I can't answer that one. All we can do here is give you some hints on how to do the journey. We can't tell you to actually walk the road. But the beautiful thing about learning is that it will never take us further than our fear. Our fear is what eventually limits the scope and breadth of our understanding. And so we can stay within that learning whatever it is that it takes place on that particular field. But if we're just willing to understand how our fears govern our learning, then all of a sudden our field continues to expand even beyond the fear. If we're just willing to see how it is that we keep ourselves confined, how we focus in on the narrow and the limited definitions of who we are, how we have some sense of 
of, um, of anxiety about what may lie beyond the fence of our known boundaries. Just a sense of that, just an intimation. Then our learning is still active, it is still growing, it's still rich, it's still allowing us the opportunity to move our fences further and further on that field, further and further back. And that's really all we can do. That's the gentle quality of growth. Showing us its value, showing us its limitation. Never sticking with just the value of something. What's this limitation? Where am I being limited by this? How is it containing me? How is it constricting me? How is it defining me in this moment? Just our willingness to ask that question allows the gentle understanding to unfold from one view into the other and to make our lives completely spiritual in the process. Can we sit for a minute or two? So we're going to talk about the <laughs> essential elements of the formless practice. <laughs> People on the tape have no idea what we're <laughs> And uh, let, me, let us review together the first uh, three sessions. And then we'll go off and talk more about this third leg of the stool. So we said there's a couple of different ways you can practice meditation on an ongoing basis. One is that you can bring your mindfulness to bear, try to bring your mindfulness to bear on each and every act that you do all day long. And for most of us, since the view of our world is a very fractured one, is a one in which there's a lot of individuality and a lot of elements and a lot of products and a lot of things we're trying to acquire, to put that practice on that view is very difficult to do. Because to practice meditation actually comes from, the derivations of meditations come from another view. So if we're operating from one view and trying to impose a practice from another view, there seems to, it feels as if it's very laborious, very difficult, very tedious and exacting. <clears throat> and what we often find after we leave the meditation retreats and try to practice that for a while is that very quickly, it seems to dissipate, and we're back doing the old things that we always did. Nothing seems to really have changed. And it's because the ground on which we walk hasn't changed. So the first practice, the first class, was to start looking at a view which accentuates and emphasizes the practice itself, rather than works in counter, rather than works counter to it. So we said that that view, which fosters the practice, fosters that very activity, is one in which we look at life as a process rather than a product. That we look out and we see things being not so important to gather and to accumulate and to possess. And this, may I say, is a teaching of all traditions, not just Buddhism. When Christ said, lay not up thy trust where rough stuff corrupt or thieves let in, something like that. He was saying, don't get lost in that view. That's what he was saying. So sometimes I think we feel, if we can bring in other voices from other prophets, we feel a little more, we have a little more faith 
and what we're doing here. And surely, there are many voices yelling that view at us, a perennial lineage of voices. So the view of, of process leads us into relationship, doesn't it? If I'm not after gathering you and holding you as a possession, then I'm interested in relating to you on an ongoing basis as a process. As two people come together and move across in time, they touch. And for that moment, there is a relationship, a contact, a quality of presence that's very important. And it's that that is the essence of the meditation. At the same time that we hold the view of process, we're also meditating because the relationship, as people know who are, have been practicing mindfulness for some time, is all important in meditation. The, me the meditation relationship is the essence. Now, it's not relationship in this sense doesn't mean r man to woman, not a romantic relationship or man to man, whatever your particular. But it means subject object, having a sense of other things in the field and a, and a relationship and a, and a way of relating to that thing. So we started first week and talked about that change of view, how we can sustain the practice through that change of view. And then uh, the next class was, what's the attitude that you address life given that view? What's the way to make life work given the fact that it's a process and not a product? And so we explored the attitude which sustains that view